0: This is Eye on Education, on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there, and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast. Fridays are our opportunity to look at all the school stories of the week as we put the eye on education. And this week we discussed the somewhat surprising research that Ramadan improves educational outcomes among teenagers. That's despite the impact of reduced hours at school, late nights and fasting. We spoke to the professor behind the research, Eric Hornung. We also found out about the realities of Ramadan within the school gates with Sajida al-Bashir. Now, she is head of Arabic and Islamic studies at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Plus, as LinkedIn adds dyslexic thinking as a skill and Richard Branson endorses the move, we discussed how the disorder can be seen as a benefit and how we can diagnose it in our children. Plus, we crossed live to the tropical island of Bali to find out what life is like in a classroom of the Green School. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there and a very warm welcome to Ion on Education. Uh, it is our chance to discuss the main education stories of the week. We do it every Friday from 11 till 1pm and uh, it is our, yeah, it's our special time. It's our special educational time. Andrew's looking at me Go. going, what do you mean it's our special time? But it is. All through the week, whenever we see the possibility of a cool education story, we're like, oh, brilliant, we can do that on Friday. That's perfect. That
2: is true, yes. It is yes.
0: indeed. It is indeed. Right. Uh, there's been plenty happening in the world of schools this week, not least the announcement that all pupils in Abu Dhabi private schools will be returning to in-person classes next week. As you just heard, Andrew Hosey, producer and reporter from the ARN News Centre, has been following following... this story for us.
2: Yes, this was the announcement from Abu Dhabi's Department of Education and Knowledge and it comes into effect when children return to school on Monday after the spring break. The Education Authority said distance learning will no longer be an option at the Emirates private schools, although pupils can be exempted if they have an attested high-risk medical report that confirms their inability to attend school in person.
0: Okay, there's also been a few other changes made actually in the schools, hasn't
2: there? That's right. Physical distancing measures indoors have been removed in the areas. There was uh, uh, the. issues out the distancing outdoors that was removed is now also happening indoors now unvaccinated pupils aged 16 and above can now return to school but have to provide a negative PCR test result every week peoples and teachers who are close contacts of a COVID-19 case will have to take tests on days one and seven of course, physical distancing requirements in outdoor areas, as I mentioned, have been removed. Pupils in grades 1 to 12 will be required to wear face masks in indoor areas. So face masks for 1 to 12. Still required. That's important.
0: How about uh, when the kids go back to school on Monday in Abu Dhabi? Are there any particular requirements?
2: Yes. So, pupils in Abu Dhabi, this and this doesn't refer to schools in other emirates, by the way, they must present a 96-hour negative PCR test result on the first day of the return to school. There are free tests, though, available, so it's not going to cost, but do get in touch with Sihar drive through Centres. Also, private medical centres, do get in touch with them. To ensure that you can get booked in to make sure you get that free test for children. People aged below 12 can go for a free saliva test as another option at dedicated centres. And you can find out all those details on the ADEC website.
0: Meanwhile, uh, the Education Authority in Dubai has been busy as well, haven't
2: they? It has indeed. The KHDA has introduced a school fees fact sheet to give parents a breakdown of all charges that they can face throughout the year. It's a one-page reference guide, basically. It includes all the fees that a school may charge during that year. It will include annual tuition fees, of course, and other costs. So your transport costs, getting to and from school, if you use school buses, and also if you're uh, going on uh, outfield activities, extracurricular activities as well, books, amongst other things as well. Parents pupils in all private schools in Dubai are able to access that fact sheet, and in the first phase, these sheets are available for the schools that are starting their academic year this month so that 's mainly indian curriculum schools
0: yes i didn 't realize that that was different here until mm. I read about this it 's really interesting so the Indian curriculum schools actually the the first the first day of term for them the first day of the school year for them is tomorrow well no on monday
2: some have gone back this week because uh, oh, i've they? been seeing them boarding the school buses ah. as i've been coming to work in the morning this week and that definitely didn't happen last week so some are definitely back this week so we'll have started their term all their new academic year already in fact 35 schools in dubai will be uh, able to use this fact sheet and that covers 81000 pupils wow
0: there's a lot of kids in those schools, aren't there? <laughs> I'm not going to try and do the maths. We all know I can't talk and do maths at the same time. It is a well-known fact.
2: But we have, yeah, we have experienced. That I tried as to do well.
0: percentages once. That was a fail. While talking, it doesn't work, unfortunately.
2: Okay. So when
0: are the rest of us getting Uh, it? So
2: we're all, the rest are all going back in September. Uh, So that's the British American IB curriculums. So that's service. service. It will be available before the close of this current academic year, though. So I'm guessing, is that the end of June, beginning of July?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and that will be hugely helpful because it is quite difficult sometimes to figure out what the fees are. Uh, we have got in touch with the KHDA. They have promised that they will talk to us about this further. Uh, so hopefully by the end of this hour, so before midday, uh, we will have heard from the team at the KHDA uh, about exactly how those fact sheets are designed to work. Meanwhile, Latin academics are calling for a shake up in the way they teach the subject. Yes, there is a reason why I'm playing that. And I'm apologies for the ridiculous pun. Uh, it is because academics from the University of Cambridge have issued a new guide. They say that Latin teaching in many schools is based on 1950s models and a fresh approach would attract more pupils. Uh, Stephen Hunt, who is the guide's author, said that Latin should be structured in the same way as modern foreign languages, based on the four skills of leading, listening, reading, speaking and writing. Did you learn Latin at school, Andrew?
2: No. We were given the option, though. Yes. Interestingly.
0: So I did it all the way up to GCSE. Did you? I loved it. Really? Genuinely loved it. And it really helps with learning all other languages. Um, but I put the word out amongst my, my mates, you know, the sort of Jamira Jane mates. We have, we have a, um, a WhatsApp group that we ironically, I must say, call Jamira Jane okay. because many of us work um, and, you know, don't sit around having our nails done all day, I promise. Um, and they said that it isn't offered a great deal out here. There weren't very many people who said, yeah, yeah, the kids can learn Latin out here. But anyway, I decided to do the topic on the radio nevertheless, because it's a good one. Um, uh, so Stephen Hunt went on. This is the guide's author. He said that uh, one way to teach children in a more interesting way would be to use modern day music, such as uh, Taylor Swift's song, Bad Blood. That would help them teach the starting place for writing in Latin. And also um, he talked about a YouTube channel featuring translated songs from The Little Mermaid and and frozen I'll just let you pause there for a moment to try and imagine how that would sound are you are you struggling are you struggling Andrew yeah don't worry
1: yeah
0: that's bad oh! just about hit
2: that note you know what (laughs) just looking at this this is on YouTube this is a well known choir doing this really they're called Libera they're very well known I don't know why they picked her to do that because it doesn't. Sound very <laughs> I don't know whether <laughs> she
0: hit the note very well. I mean to be fair, to the last, she is singing in Latin, which is you know a language that's been dead for a very long time, so we're not going to we're not going to the um, hold too much against her, but certainly I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear 4001, uh, four double zero one or zero four eight seven one double five double zero. Do you think uh, Taylor Swift and Frozen would be enough to get your children interested in Latin? No, you don't think it would. You're pretty certain. OK, meanwhile, uh, one of uh, what... I'm going I'm to ask you the question, OK? I don't do this very often, which is why I'm strumb- struggling with it. OK, what subject are global educators campaigning to replace science, technology, engineering and maths, or the so-called STEM subjects? Andrew.
2: Right, I... You do know hmm. the answer because
0: I've written it down Okay, uh, right. <laughs> so shall I just intent. read this out? Yeah, just read it out. Okay. so
2: it out. this, so I, this didn't, is a- I didn't craft that very
0: well. I'm not very good at the question and answering process. I'll get better at that.
2: So this is a wide-reaching... You can tell it's Friday. This is a wide-reaching campaign led by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is calling for children to learn more about financial literacy from an early age. But is it worth... Getting that as a replacement to STEM subjects? Okay. Uh, There's now a basic curriculum for teaching personal finance at every school level from kindergarten through to year 12. But campaigners are saying not enough schools are following it.
0: Yes. Now, this is something we covered on Iron Education two weeks ago because we are prescient. We come before the curve, even before the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, no less. Uh, And it is indeed something that UAE parents are calling for in schools here. Uh, A recent census-wide survey that was commissioned by the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, surveyed 250 expats living in the UAE with children aged 3 to 11. And more than half of them said they would like to see finance management added as a standard on the curriculum to help students be future ready. Now, speaking on this programme, Marilyn Pinto, who is the founder of KFI Global. Uh, She helps teach children about how to manage their pocket money amongst other uh, skills she says there's not enough financial education for children
3: you know what is the number one skill that most
0: parents wish that they when they were younger it's going to be money what's the number leading cause of uh, you know
3: arguments uh, um, divorces relationship breakups family feuds again it's money what is the one thing everybody wishes they had learned and yet We're not teaching this in
4: school.
0: So if if I think that if it's 52 percent is actually probably they don't realize how important that is or they're not thinking about it, because as parents, we know we have a hundred things that we are that we are worried about. And that may not be an immediate concern, but that does not mean that it is important. Uh, So I think that percentage actually would be a lot higher if we had to talk with the parents and give them the options and give them stats and tell them this is the problem. You probably have a lot higher percentage
3: than that actually wanting their kids to study about money.
0: We also spoke to Andrew Toward. Now, he developed an app to help children build up personal finance sense.
5: EdFundo is a money management application that comes with a a prepaid debit card. So it gives them the practical tools to use in everyday life. Money is an everyday commodity. Um, It's not going away and children and teens need to be prepared. And essentially, the underbelly of what EdFundo is, the ethos around that and the core values that, that we have Is all driven through education. So we really have education at the heart of what we do from the educational background and also our name, EdFundo, Education First. And it's really important that they can have the opportunity to apply the skills that they're taught and what they're learning. Into a real life situation where it's the practical tools being Ed Fundo to be able to use to not just spend but also to understand saving and where money comes from.
0: This is Eye On Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai.
0: Hello there and welcome back. Now the social media site, LinkedIn has officially recognised dyslexic thinking as a skill. Uh, That is in a move hailed as a breakthrough by Sir Richard Branson, the billionaire businessman. Now, he's teamed up with the global charity Made by Dyslexia to launch a campaign to enlist other major organisations to recognise dyslexic thinking as a celebrated term and a valuable workplace skill set against an outdated
2: narrative. I'm Richard Branson and I'm Made by Dyslexia. From today, you can join me in adding dyslexic thinking to the list of skills on your LinkedIn profile using your drop-down menu. In other fantastic news, Dictionary.com have committed to add dyslexic thinking as an official term. My dyslexic thinking has helped me see solutions where I think others saw problems. It helped me to dream big and to innovate. If you're dyslexic, join me in adding it to your LinkedIn profile today. Show your pride in being... Made by Dyslexia.
0: He's not the only uh, famous name to have got involved in the campaign. Uh, The actor Orlando Bloom, who you might remember from many films, including Pirates of the Caribbean, said that if you have a child with dyslexia, it's all about honing in on their special skill.
2: Every child has a superpower. If you're dyslexic, it's kind of your superpower. It's like the way that you think. So then you just need to be given tools and opportunities and learning like, like, passion-based learning you know and if education is a challenge for a child with dyslexia you need to understand how to educate them so that it isn't a challenge so that it's fun because it's not that they're stupid it's not that they're not capable they just need to learn how to be how to enjoy the process of learning
0: Now, in a few minutes, we'll speak to an adult about how he's come to live with dyslexia and forge a successful career on the TV and the radio. But first, let's talk about how you can diagnose the disorder in children. And I'm joined now on the line by Dr. Rima Abudan. She's the founder of Dyslexia for Educational Consultation, which was set up in 2007. And she's also renowned for her research in the field and is a recipient of the Harvard Distinction in 2010. Uh, Dr. Rima, thank you so much for joining us on the line. How are you?
4: Hello. Hello. Good morning. Very nice to be with you today.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Microsoft Teams. Uh, So tell me, Dr. Reema, with all your experience, how would you describe this term dyslexic thinking? Dyslexic thinking
4: is the thinking that is used by people who suffer with dyslexia. It's usually picture thinking and visual, which means their brains work by visual processing. And Visual processing usually takes place in the right side of the brain. Now, we all know that the brain has two hemispheres, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere uses visual processing and works through images. It spots patterns and takes creative approach to skill, uh, to problem solving. It works in a holistic manner. And that's why this thinking takes new
0: approaches to issues that they deal with. Um, You were describing the way that dyslexic thinking works and how how it's focused on uh, basically the way that the brain works. Is that correct?
4: Yes, yes. Now, we have to highlight that the dyslexic thinking also comes with shortcomings. I mean, it, as, as everybody knows, there are strengths and weaknesses. So, we have to highlight both of these uh, uh, areas in order to give those people their potential. So, Some of the weaknesses is that they forget important dates, they have difficulty with personal organization, uh, poor time management. But on the other hand, because they have holistic thinking, they discover connections in issues they deal with that some other people might miss normal people, average people will miss these things. So that is their strength. They are especially good at bringing information together and resources together from different principles in order to create something new. It makes them very skilled inventors and very imaginative thinkers. As you said yourself, Richard Branson is a very known example who has proved time and time again how he is very good thinking outside the box. In fact, he says that his dyslexia is his greatest strength. So this is how they think and this is how they are strong with their abilities.
0: It's, it's so interesting to hear there because you can absolutely imagine how uh, that type of thinking would be beneficial in the workplace. I mean, you wouldn't want everyone to have that style of thinking, especially if, it, you know, if people are more likely to maybe forget things or, or, or not be quite as ordered in certain fields. But you'd certainly want it as part of the mix.
4: yes. Yes definitely definitely it is very beneficial to have it in the workplace because of the abilities they have now let me stress this is not a disability the word disability about this condition has been made illegal oh, many interesting.
0: Years ago. so I, it's so interesting that you say there that that, that 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 it's now illegal to cause, call uh, dyslexia a disability
4: Absolutely. And it's been illegal for many years. Unfortunately, not many people recognize this. And they still label people who are dyslexics as disabled people. And they look at them as people who cannot achieve their potential. But the actual fact is that the ability that dyslexics have allows them to be very skilled inventors and imaginative thinkers. They come with very strong visual memory they come with excellent puzzle-solving skills brilliant visual reasoning and don't forget they are very great connecting with people so with all these strengths we have to give them the chance to prove themselves unfortunately not many people look at them in the positive way that we just highlighted Uh, Let me stress here, dyslexia is a condition, not an illness. It is not a disability. It has been proven actually through recent research that the kind of thinking that dyslexics have is vital for the 21st century workplace. Let's allow these this, uh, dyslexics to allow to, to achieve their potential. Let's raise awareness. The biggest, the biggest hurdle that we have, from my own point of view, is that we lack social awareness about how dyslexics have such strong skills that they can apply to all of us in the society that we can benefit from and that is why yes definitely it is very beneficial for us to have dyslexics in the workplace when it is given the chance to be beneficial we have to
0: recognize it I mean that is absolutely fascinating I come from a family where my father has dyslexia and throughout the whole of our childhood we were you know we were told that it was a relief that we hadn't also um, inherited it uh, and that it uh, had actually delayed his career and, and caused problems so I'm really enjoying that the fact that nowadays it's completely reframed and, and thank goodness it is how can we spot it in our children because in order for them to gain the sort of benefit I, I imagine first of all you need to you need to spot it
4: yes yes of course there are so many symptoms that can be spotted in any person who is dyslexic not only a child there are many adult dyslexics as well now i'm gonna give the most uh, important ones uh, from the basics, those dyslexics have trouble in remembering the letters of the alphabets. Okay. They reverse okay. letters, letters which look similar, uh, uh, like B and D, P and Q. They often reverse them. They guess words within context because they cannot read. Mm-hmm. So instead right. of saying home, they say house, for example. They confuse words which look similar, like very simple, on and uh, uh, no, or top and pot. These are very simple two-letter and three-letter words, and still they have confusion in them. They cannot rhyme, they have difficulty in, in matching sounds to make words, they resist attending school, They they hate homework most of the time, they are poor in spelling. And most of the time, their level of reading is less, much less, than the level of their speaking. They will be very eloquent speakers. But when it comes to reading, they are stuck. And on the other hand, when we compare them with their peers, they are at a lower reading level level than their peers. So, all these are some of the symptoms. Now, these can come with other symptoms, not with every dyslexic, but some dyslexics prevent with other symptoms like lack of attention, disorganization, uh, uh, they, they cannot prioritize tasks, they cannot follow uh, steps in an in a instructional setting, and so on. So. Mm-hmm. These are the most important symptoms. However, not everybody who reverses letters is a dyslexic. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! So, so I, I have so many parents coming to me and say, "My boy is dyslexic. Why your boy is dyslexic? Oh, because he reverses the uh, B and the D." Okay. So that's why I have to stress, please, societies, you have to, in order to diagnose someone with dyslexia, you have to give them fully comprehensive, licensed assessments. And these assessments have to be done by licensed therapists who know how to use the assessment and who are using tests which are licensed. Unfortunately, I came across so many stories who came to me
0: being diagnosed with dyslexia wrongly. Dr. Uh, Rima, Dr. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your expertise. Uh, that was Dr. Rima Abuddin. She's the founder of Dyslexia for Educational Consultation, which was set up in 2007. This is Eye on Education on the agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Welcome back. Now, joining me on Microsoft Teams now is Danny Cowan. He's a TV continuity announcer who works in the United Kingdom. In fact, if you've been watching British television recently, you may well recognise Danny's voice. He's a continuity announcer for a TV station in the UK called Channel 4. And he also works for their offshoot E4 and More4. But he's had a lot to overcome to get where he is today. Uh, Danny, thank you for joining us on the agenda. How are you
5: doing? I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm very well indeed. And I do recognise your voice immediately, which is brilliant.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Even with this headset on, it's a bit mad, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Even with the headset on, uh, you are live on Microsoft Teams. Are we on Facebook Live as well? We are. If you're watching on Facebook Live, apparently you need to look out for Danny's cat because it's in the background.
5: There she is. Yeah, she, there, there, she, you is. Go. there fast, she is. Fast, fast asleep. Fast yeah. asleep,
0: enjoying <laughs> enjoying the sort of uh, the wintry the wintry weather by staying inside. Um, Danny, yes. the reason why we've asked you to come on the radio, uh, in fact, uh, producer Andrew knows you from your time at the BBC, is basically because uh, you have had dyslexia, and, and basically you were diagnosed uh right back uh, a few years ago so let's i I tell you what let's start from the beginning let's head back to your childhood what was it like for you at school with dyslexia
5: Well, in school it was absolute hell because uh, I had to. I knew that there was something wrong, that and I couldn't quite work out what it was. I uh, had problems with reading, uh, problems with uh, writing, uh, and you know, whenever the the class was advancing so much, um, I really wasn't allowed to, and I I got so far behind that I had to have special classes uh, for my reading, etc. And then whenever the classes uh, went on to sort of cursive writing. I couldn't get it at all. Uh, I kept on, uh, even in the normal writing, I I, I kept on getting my B's and my D's mixed up. Uh, The letter Q and nine and P were an absolute mystery to me. I couldn't work out why Uh, I couldn't tell the difference between these things. Um, And uh, so, yes, school was was absolute hell. Uh, to say the least. Um, plus, I was also kept back a year because I, I, I fell so far behind uh, in my lessons and things like that. So, um, and, and secondary school wasn't much better, really. Uh, it just took me a while to to try and find a way that I could learn things. Uh, and it was mostly in subjects that I had an interest in uh, and with teachers who took the time to to teach me properly.
0: So when you're looking at the page what are you What are you seeing? Do you think you actually see something different to what people who are not dyslexic see
5: uh, yes absolutely I, I think that um, uh, this is my own experience obviously uh, but whenever whenever I was young the the uh, for example the letters um, uh, b and d uh, whenever you write them down uh, as a, as a school kid and things like that. I literally couldn't tell the difference between them. There, there was no way that I was able to differentiate, but, uh, differentiate between the two of them. Uh, and it was the same with a, a P and a Q and the number nine. There was no, I, I couldn't tell the difference between them. And sometimes, even now, uh, I'm a lot better at, at reading and writing. Well, I would like to hope so. And I'd like to hope to think so anyway. But um, uh it's uh, sometimes whenever you're looking at a script for example I, obviously in the job that i do i have to to write uh, a lot uh, and read scripts a lot live on television which uh, can be quite a challenge sometimes and what i tend to do is i tend to look at the script uh, and i tend to learn it before i actually say it live on air uh, and that helps because whenever i'm i'm reading the words they basically disappear God. Or even if I, I, even if I'm looking at a word that I've read hundreds of times before, um, I can't connect that word with the with the word in my head. It just doesn't happen. So I could be looking at it and going, "I have no idea what that word is." Um, so it it is it's quite a, quite a challenge sometimes, especially in the job that I have at the moment.
0: Do you know when you describe it like that, I have. Um... I have a similar thing with names. It's and it, until until you just described it, I I didn't realize that that you could be almost described as a, a, as a syndrome, if you know what I mean. Because I can be told somebody's name, and the instant I'm on air. I will forget it. And it de- it literally disappears. The words disappear from my head. It, and it is extraordinary. It, it's very similar to what you described there, where the word can suddenly go. It must mean you have the most amazing memory. Um, because you're, you're basically... <laughs> I, wish, I wish I did. <laughs> or short-term memory, at the very least. Because <laughs> that's how you're managing to hurdle the problem. I, essentially, I suppose, is by memorising it first so that you can then do these incredible sort of live, high-tension moments. I mean, did your school pick up on the situation? Were you helped?
5: Um, I, was, I had special reading classes and things like that whenever I was in primary school. Um... Uh, but the but, the thing is obviously it 's been a while since i 've been in school, so back in those days they didn 't really know that much about dyslexia, and uh, they they didn 't really pick up on it as as well as they should. I believe that schools nowadays um, have tests for it and and pick up on it quite early which is which is amazing um, because it would have made my life so much easier had I known uh, back then um, but uh, it, it's it 's really difficult to to try and explain how I worked my way. I, th- I think I could sort of, I had to try and uh, train myself how to get round the hurdles, the problems that I had uh, and and learn my own way of doing things. Even, even today in work, um, I have very special ways of doing things. I find it difficult working in open planned offices because I'm very easily distracted. Uh, that will make the writing more difficult for me um and it is things like that that i have to sort of so if i'm in an enclosed um, box as we call them uh, which is the studio or the booth uh, that we broadcast from i'm i'm perfect it's it's my perfect working environment because uh i'm in a place where i can concentrate on things i have no distractions and i can work away and very happily work away if i'm in an open uh, office environment very difficult
0: would your school teachers have ever thought that you would end up in a job where literally your entire career relies on being able to read and write <laughs> uh, you could have been a carpenter uh,
5: <laughs> absolutely not uh, no way on earth um the, the thing is that whenever i was in uh school i had i had this uh Uh, obsession with uh, television and radio uh, and I loved both of them and I uh, did everything in my power, but I had no interest in school whatsoever because I find it so difficult. I wasn't getting the the backing that I really needed etc and the problem was that uh, I had to find something that uh, you know held my interest and and was something that I really wanted to do and broadcasting was that because it's a very Practical, you know, you've got uh, you've got things like uh, mixer desks and uh, and buttons to push and things like that, and and I find these things sort of captured me, and I, I was like, I, I really wanted to work in that. Um, so I found ways of my handwriting was and is absolutely atrocious. There's there's no two ways about it, and I find a way of getting around it. And uh, pestering the BBC uh, was by. Um, buying a typewriter whenever I was really young so I started um, typing letters and they couldn't tell how bad my handwriting was so uh, that was one way that I got around it so I you know I'm very uh, creative in uh, ways of finding uh, ways around the problems that I have
0: it's really interesting to hear how resourceful you've had to be and, and, and very encouraging, I imagine, for any parents out there who've got dyslexic children who are struggling at the moment, uh, to see where your role and where your resourcefulness and your creativity can take you. So, uh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your cat's no time. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to. She's still, she's,
5: oh, she's, she's having a bath at the moment. She's oh, a
0: leg up. She's got a leg in an odd place. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness Can you imagine it's also you know it's, it's ramadan at the moment we have to be a bit more careful about what we yes. expose on live on television uh so thank yes. you <laughs> thank you for your time danny no it's problem a at pleasure. all lovely to meet you a pleasure thank you very much that is uh, danny cowan a tv continuity announcer who works in the uk i'm sure you can recognize his voice and his cat we haven't learned the name of his cat yet we'll have to what's your cat's name danny
5: uh, Liza with a Z.
0: Liza with a Z who is uh, currently having a bath. Mercifully, her modesty is being preserved by Danny's back. Uh, right, thank you so much. This is i on education on the agenda
1: with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people.
0: Right then, welcome back. Uh, We are now going to discuss an absolutely fascinating study on the impact of Ramadan on education. Uh, The research by German academics has found the strict observance of daily fasting and prayer actually improves long-term educational outcomes in teenagers. The findings appear to counter concerns that disrupted sleep patterns or lack of food and drink from dawn until sunset during the holy month could be harmful. Uh, this week, I spoke to the study lead author, Eric Hornung. Uh, He is a professor of economic history at the University of Cologne. I started by asking him how uh, how he did his research and why he did his research.
3: As a researcher and as an economic historian, I'm really interested in the relationship between religion and education and trying to understand how much religion and religiosity affects educational outcomes. We also thought it would be interesting to understand better about Islam and education, uh, because it hasn't been studied that well. And specifically, looking at the data, we know at least Muslim countries are doing somewhat worse than other countries regarding their educational performance, typically. And so we kind of started off the study also expecting looking at other literature that Ramadan has kind of a negative uh, relationship with. We know it has negative relationship and detrimental effects for health outcomes. So my expectation, indeed, and also the one of my co-authors was there should be also something detrimental for educational performance. But we were also interested in kind of trying to understand the longer run relationship with this. And so we don't study education during Ramadan or education performance during Ramadan, but right after. And so this may be the reason also why we don't see actually a negative outcome, but actually a positive relationship there, which we find quite interesting and surprising too.
0: I have to say, I mean, as a parent here in the United Arab Emirates, you see the shortened school day from Ramadan and you presume that as a consequence, the children aren't having as much time to learn. And then, of course, fasting puts a strain on your body. It's harder to think when you're hungry. It's harder to learn. you're hungry or at least you know that's our anecdotal feeling about it but but it appears your study has found something completely different
3: well it appears to me too yeah um so we know at least that um from other studies that i mean your educational performance during ramadan and especially in non-muslim countries where where students are also not catered to during their school days and also as a student in university that seems to be really detrimental then. But what we think is happening, at least according to what we can do with the data, is that after a certain while, when like the negative detrimental effects of Ramadan uh, peter out, there seems to be something happening about the social aspects of Ramadan, which I think in the literature at least have been less emphasized. I mean, it's much about fasting indeed. And it's clear that there's health effects uh, coming from that. It's not like we do intermediate fasting, uh, which is also kind of a technique that you can use in in order to increase your productivity. My understanding is at least how the fasting works, and I obviously am not an observer of Ramadan, is that it's way too long. And the fast breaking also is not like giving you the the food that you would optimally take in for increasing productivity. So what we actually think is happening is that during Ramadan, you become more social. And that's an important aspect of Ramadan, doing the fast break together, meeting people at the mosque um, and becoming more sociable and potentially also meeting other people that you would otherwise not be meeting. So indeed, what we see in the data is that especially during a formative year where you add as a student between 15 and 18, specifically what we see is that people in places that have a more intensive Ramadan, where in Ramadan is during summertime, are also more frequent to go to prayer than people who have a less intense Ramadan. And that's only during a formative year. So if it's later, right, if you have a very intensive Ramadan in your 30s or 40s, that doesn't change your frequency of going to mosque anymore. But as an adolescent, this might change your religious behavior, and something that comes with that might be the fact that you have access to other people that you otherwise wouldn't have known. And that might give you also access to friends with other backgrounds, which potentially give you a better access to education, knowledge, and study together, for example. So I'm not saying it's it's good for everyone, it's good for the average Ramadan observer. Maybe your parental background, which is important in education anyways, gives you all you need for your educational performance, but the average person seems to be benefiting.
0: But what's so interesting about that, it's not an absence of something, but actually it's the addition of something. So it's the fact that you're socializing with more people and potentially learning, therefore, from your contemporaries or, or adults, and that that is what is helping with the educational achievement.
3: So we can study this much better for European countries actually, where we can compare Muslims with students from other backgrounds. And we see that it's actually stronger for students in Muslim majority classes and schools. So there seems to be also something that may be related to social identity building. Um, Maybe you were in a group of students with the same backgrounds, but now you see other students also observing Ramadan and you feel more alike. You have this common experience with people that you typically don't meet with also in schools and in classes. And maybe that's helpful for your education performance.
0: Are there particular subjects in which students seem to be doing better because of the Ramadan period?
3: So what we use for educational performance are these standardized tests, right? There's TIMS and there's PISA. Maybe some of you have heard about PISA. We can study this over longer periods of time because they are these waves. So every three or five years, they're doing this standardized tests and they're mostly focusing on science and math, but also on reading ability. So it's not a specific subject that you're better in but your general abilities seem to improve and that's across the board so it's science math and reading abilities that are improving due to that on roughly the same level.
0: That is Eric Hornung, who's a professor of economic history at the University of Cologne and one of the lead authors on that fascinating report on the effects of Ramadan on long-term educational outcomes. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7.
0: Hello there and welcome back. And we are discussing the impact of Ramadan on education. That's off the back of that fascinating study that that shows the strict observance of daily fasting and prayer actually improves long-term educational outcomes in teenagers. The findings appear to counter-concern that disrupted sleep patterns and lack of food or drink from dawn until sunset during the holy month could be harmful. Well, that's what the academics in Germany believe, but let's have a look at the realities of Ramadan within the school gates. I'm joined on the line now by Sajida al-Bashir. She is head of Arabic and Islamic at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Joining me on uh, Facebook Teams uh, live. Hello there. How are you, Sajida? Hi, Georgia. Ramadan Kareem. Ramadan Kareem to you. How are you? Fine. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you joining us on the line. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it uh, because it is so important. Uh, the, the, I mean, this report is fascinating, and, uh, but it's very academic and it's looking at a sort of very broad the uh, scale of children, you know, hundreds of and thousands of of, of, uh, of inf- you know pieces of information about students, all anonymous, of course, and they've drawn these fantastic conclusions, uh, which are counterproductive and, and really interesting. Uh, but I I, do, I still want to know what it's actually like on the ground. So so this report showed that it was actually you know children's education was actually benefiting from Ramadan. Are you surprised by that?
6: I have to say I'm surprised, but also happy yes. because the discussion about uh, the impact of fasting on Muslim students, especially uh, those, as you said, the, like the teenagers, where they will have exams, the IB exams, the IGCC exams, and how fasting, as you said, like from uh, um, uh, sunrise till uh, dawn time, we're talking about 15 hours uh, um, uh, of not drinking any water and not to eat anything. Uh, that was the assumption that uh, this will impact them uh, badly, but when the results and the conclusions came uh, out of the study, I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Uh, As a parent, I have to say that I had both of my boys who are now studying in Canada, they actually had their exams during fasting. And I was a little bit like worried. Um, did I um, make the right choice for them? Did they choose the right choice? But look at the, the, the uh, conclusion and the uh, findings of the study. It does uh, impact them uh, beautifully and positively.
0: Yes, it sounds like it's it's not so much the absence of something, but it's the gain. They gain this wonderful social uh, cohesion and, and and a sort of uh, social education from their contemporaries, which is totally unexpected.
6: Absolutely. Um, um, as mentioned in the study, the, these interactions with friends, uh, members of the families, where they usually don't meet during the, uh, uh, during the weekends, but they do meet because of the social interactions in Ramadan. This has benefited the, the, the students and also the families in general uh, to have really like the social skills, uh, the non-cognitive um, uh, um, uh, skills, which is important for students in school. I
0: mean, how do schools practically cater for children who are fasting now? Obviously, at RGS, the children tend to be they're quite young still. So this is more sort of pertinent for uh, the older teenagers who, who have started to fast.
6: That's true, uh, Georgia. However, some Muslim families, including myself, we uh, we would like to see our younger kids um, uh, practice fasting. Um, if they can do the whole day, which is like 15, 16 hours of fasting, if they can start uh, uh, the process by making themselves um wake up in the early morning for Suhoor, uh, the the early uh, meal that we have, and then till midday. uh, But we just wanted our kids to to have a taste, uh, to try. Um, So to be honest, I've seen it. I've seen it in, in, in some families. They start where the kids are in year two. The, at young, uh, they wanted their kids to start uh, observing the uh, holy month and uh, practice with the, with the whole family. Uh, what does it mean to fast? I imagine the
0: children want to be included as well. If you see your parents doing something and, and then enjoying that moment uh, where the fast is broken, you know, kids of, you know, even four or five would want to be included in that as well.
6: And they wanted to be on the big table with the adults eating yeah. the iftar meal, to be honest. This is the most durable uh, time for them.
0: Absolutely. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, and therefore, how do schools cater for children, you know, as young as four or five who, who are fasting or at least trying to get as far through the day as they can?
6: Absolutely. A good question, Georgia. Uh, so first of all, we need to educate the adults, which is the teachers, the the, the school body about uh, Ramadan. Uh, at RGS, most of our uh, teachers came outside of, uh, of UAE. So we wanted them to understand the purpose and the, the the meaning of fasting and what does it mean to be in a Muslim country during this holy month um, by um, running the uh, whole school assemblies. Uh, you you know that the KHDA and the Ministry of Education they have shortened the uh, school day, uh, so children and and teachers can uh, go home and continue practicing the the. Uh, religious uh, duties and uh, also the um, uh, family duties, uh, but also we have uh, designed a whole program uh, for students uh, through the first week of school when we come back next week, and um, uh, this includes lots of activities uh, for those they wanted to uh, fast and. Not to be with the kids who are eating in the dining hall Uh, during lunch break, we have created uh, activity rooms uh, where they can uh, do some kind of activities, uh, reciting the holy uh, Quran or having a discussion with with the Islamic or Arabic teacher. That sounds
0: uh, a wonderful way of just helping them move past a sort of potential hurdles in their day. I mean, in your experience as a teacher of many years, do you notice a drop in concentration due to a disruption in sleep or, or because of fasting?
6: To be honest, I have to refer that um, uh, to the cultural duties uh, uh, and the social duties that we practice during the holy month of Ramadan. Uh, I I came from a senior school background where I saw my students, especially those they are from uh, UAE, uh, where the whole day for them is different during Ramadan. Uh, So during the day, they would uh, go like quiet, um, not to do so much of uh, interactions or um, uh, to be in school, to be honest. Uh, or to study and at the night where the whole thing starts after iftar we're talking about 7 or 6:45 till midnight, uh, which the whole thing happens, the prayers, the the uh, gatherings, the uh, iftar uh, um, uh, gatherings that they have, and their, their families, and everyone is awake. So for them, that was a struggle. And then they need to go to sleep, and then to wake up at the suhoor, uh, to have the meal, and then maybe to have another hour of sleeping before going to school. So all these disruption of uh, sleeping does... Uh, Um, uh, affect them to be
0: honest Uh, you mentioned your sons taking their exams during the time of when they were fasting I mean did they find it harder do you think
6: they found they found it harder because everyone around them were were not fasting so including the Muslim students because as I said like as a parent or a family I totally understand the worry of uh, of their uh, parents wanted their kids to do the best in exams but because my my Personal belief and also as a specialist in Islamic education, I knew fasting will not harm them uh, on the way that people assume it will. So uh, we've 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 made our decision to uh, keep our fasting during the exams and the results came back. Uh, We're talking about like um, Amjad did his exams in 2020 uh, during the pandemic and Ahmed in the same year and it went really well.
0: Amazing. Oh, well, I'm very pleased to hear that. that. That's fantastic news. And I understand that, you know, these things differ from family to family as they do, you know, with Christian habits from family to family and Hindu habits from family to family. It's really interesting. I mean, tell me about, uh, well, actually, I was about to say, tell me about how the children at RGS are taught about Ramadan, but you've pretty much explained it. You have these wonderful assemblies, don't you?
6: We do have the assemblies. We do have the Ramadan week, which will start on Monday. Um, to. We treat Ramadan as a community uh, activity, not only for Muslim students or Muslim families. However, we wanted the Muslim families to feel special because this is our first Ramadan at RGS. So what we've done, we have sent the kids uh, on the last day uh, before the holiday with activity boxes, Ramadan activity boxes, to be done during the family time. And you can't imagine the, the, the thank you emails from parents and students, how wonderful that was and they are enjoying and they are actually uh, sharing with us uh, pictures of the activities while they are doing it. So the more we celebrate uh, uh, the month, uh, the more we educate everyone about it, the better it goes.
0: Really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And Ramadan Kareem, I hope you have a wonderful rest of Ramadan, rest of the holy month. Thank you for your time.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. Ramadan Kareem.
0: Ramadan Kareem. That is Sachida Al-Bashir, Head of Arabic and Islamic at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on
3: the Agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7.
0: Hello there welcome back it is Ion Education now this is our chance to discuss the main education stories of the week and i say this every week but it is my favorite feature the my classroom feature because it is our chance to travel around the world well at least for me, sitting safely in the studio, Uh, we are going to be talking to a teacher from an unusual school in a different corner of the globe. And we do it every single Friday at this time. And today we are joined by Sal Gordon, who is head of learning and principal at the Green School International in Bali. And through the powers of video conferencing, which I still haven't got over, uh, we can now see Sal. Hello. How are you?
7: Yeah. Hi. How are you? Pleasure to be here. I'm very sorry to disappoint you. Um, Don't have a classroom teacher. You've got this principal uh, on the call.
0: That is good enough. Don't you worry, because I'm sure you have had experience
7: of classrooms. Long time -time educator, passionate educator, um, been in the classroom a lot um, through my life. Um, So I I definitely think I've I've got a little bit to add to your uh, my classroom.
0: Feature. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I love the fact that I can see in the background that you are in quite a sort of Balinese style building, uh, which is always fun on Microsoft Teams. You get a bit of a taste of somebody's uh, habitat. A
7: little bit of my art there and uh, uh, not many walls in my life.
0: Yeah, that's what's extraordinary. I have been very lucky to go on holiday to Bali and I do, yes, I notice there is an absence of walls and even when it rains, no one seems to mind. You just put down blinds. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your school. It's called the Green School. I have suspicions of it being in quite a a sort of green environment as a consequence.
7: Yeah, definitely. We've got a beautiful campus in the jungles of Bali, Indonesia. We are probably about halfway if you know Bali uh, we're about halfway between Chenggu and Ubud uh, in quite a, a quiet village called Shibankaja and our campus is very nature-based very wallless. less um, it won't take listeners long to have a look on uh, google with Green School Bali and have a look at some of our uh, the architecture and the, the design of the campus um, very nice place to, to call home and school uh, Bali and Green School Bali for me.
0: It it has a sort of vibe of a, of almost like a treehouse vibe.
7: Yeah, we look. It, yeah, yeah. Well, if you think treehouses fun and um, are places of learning uh, in jung- in the jungle in the trees, yeah, yeah, definitely. But we're a serious. Look, we're. I'll start off with the serious stuff. We're we are a serious international school, and we're part of a, a small but growing network of green schools. There's green school in New Zealand and South Africa. We're also, you know, we're WASC accredited, our, our high school graduates go to universities of their choice. Um, we've designed and developed really our own curriculum based on sort of other international curricular benchmarks. Um, and we're also now really fortunate to be a part of uh, Education in Motion, which is a global education group that includes other big networks like um, the Dalage International Colleges in Asia and the Dehong schools in China. So we're a little school in the jungle. We're doing things quite differently, and um, but we're you know we're a serious, real school here. We've got a highly developed, evolving curriculum. Um, but yeah, if you're thinking treehouse fun in the jungle, definitely I want you to maintain uh, that thought.
0: I mean, how does your curriculum differ, for for example, from the the British curriculum or the American curriculum? Which, to be honest, the only two I know anything about.
7: Mm. Well, I think most curricula around the world are pretty similar in terms of benchmarks and, and specific um, standardised learning outcomes. Um, we like to think that, uh, well, there's, there's some quite significant differences. Um, we think that skills and values are as equally important as knowledge and information when we think about what we're teaching. Um, so we're trying to get off the, the standardised conveyor belt of education that's trying to just fill brains with, with information and then assess them and give them a number. So assessment practices are quite different as well. Um, the curriculum itself can't really ever be uh, pinpointed, nailed down and finalised. It's always evolving. I'd say it's probably about an 80-20 where 80% of it is set every year and 20% evolves. Um, the curriculum has a lot of values-based learning opportunities, but also um, project-based learning opportunities. Uh, and specifically in terms of on sustainability outcomes, and not really just learning about sustainability, but learning for sustainability, which, you know, when you think about sustainability, we are talking environmental, but also economic, societal and personal wellbeing, those sorts of uh, sustainability factors as well. So an evolving curriculum without standardized assessment um, that's benchmarks against the other curriculum, but provides a lot of opportunities for our students to be uh, activating their learning now rather than waiting for an exam or waiting for some imagined time in the future when you're going to need the volume of a sphere formula, um, I don't know when I'm gonna use that. But you know, we really wanna sort of start impacting the world now with, with learning rather than providing the opportunity that students might use some knowledge that they get taught at school. Um, and, and that's really important to us to sort of create a new model based on a new curriculum.
0: I mean, that gives us a sense of the of the mission of the school. How does that mm. translate, you know, into the school day? You know, do you have assemblies, lessons, PE, playtime? Do you mm. use iPads?
7: Yeah. Yeah, we do basically everything that nearly every other school sort of does. We don't have a brass band or a string quartet. But, yeah, we've got amazing. In fact, our celebrations where we, we learn together and share and celebrate together in terms of assemblies and things are, are epic. Um, we have market Um, Fridays, Spirit Fridays, where we have, you know, Hollywood markets, uh, vendors and and music and and celebrations, uh, the biggest celebrations I could know. You know, the mission is to be a community of learners making the world sustainable. And so specifically to be more than just a school, but to reinsert uh, a school model into like the very core of how we generate cultures. Because, you know, we believe that learning can and should have a positive impact on the, the world now. But we also believe that the responsibility of education is for a school to be more than just a place where you drop your kids off in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon. Um, and then you'll expand that concept. Can I keep talking?
0: Yeah, keep talking. <laughs> you,
7: you, you can expand that concept when you go, well, you know, we're all learners and I go to events as the principal of the school and learn from my students a lot and, and parents are learning within our community. Um, the, the community isn't really... Um, an, an expat bubble when you know and we we learn with and from our beautiful Balinese hosts as well so the community of learners focus sort of changes uh, just the school to be a place in where learning happens inside walls to be a, a, an active center of learning center of innovation within education and you know we do stand on this concept of making the world a better place for education making the world sustainable and I don't think that's an unreasonable uh, responsibility to take for educators because you know, <laughs> Like it or not, you know, our futures are defined by education systems and I want to have a positive impact. And Green School Bali, I believe, is having a positive positive impact on the future that we want to create
0: do you know i think a few years ago it you might have sounded sort of slightly out of kilter or oh. or wild or you know like like um really left field in, in your thinking i describe despite the argument being very well argued but i think a lot has changed over the last 5 years i think people's perspectives on sustainability and environmentalism have completely changed
7: yeah and where does the change you know where the perceptions can change and then i think school systems are changing i see you know, being a part of the education in motion and being um, closely looking at the Dulwich International Colleges and, and looking at your IB programs and looking at what's good in other edu- education, is changing. Um, we know that but some of the we've had the ability to be really flexible and agile with change and changing quickly, um, where some of those sort of more established traditional education models are going to take a long time to, to, to move. But I think COVID had played, uh, you know, obviously COVID's played a, a nice looking glass effect into what education and what kids are learning at school. Um, and, you know, the environment is something that I think more, more and more people are starting to think we'll, we really should be protecting this. This might be our one chance, our one earth. Uh,
0: COVID-19 obviously had an impact on, as you mentioned, on education around the world. Was your school closed for any length of time or could kids still come?
7: Uh, no. Well, yeah. um we went from 530 students at the end of a term three and um, that must be two or three years ago to 500 in bali um on campus beautiful campus big celebrations uh, lots of experiential learning hands-on project lots of relationship-based learning to being fully online um basically overnight um wow. we came out of holidays and and ended up being online uh, our community scattered around the world we had 42 different countries represented at the time um, we let everyone go wherever they wanted to, and we went online over three different time zones for a term. Um, then we've been fortunate because in Indonesia itself, the schools here have been really uh, strongly closed uh, for an extended period of time, and even up until a month ago. Um, we've got a different license as well. We can do uh, some outdoor education and, and edu tourism licenses, and we were able to keep our kids coming to school for the majority of their learning over the past two years, which is um, pretty amazing for our, our community to pivot. You know, we had to we had school on Saturdays at some stage. We had school in at campsites. Um, we we've done some pretty crazy things. I think we've had about five different models of blended online, online blended, uh, three time zone, one time zone online co- courses. Um, yeah, we've we've uh, we've gone through the the tumble dryer, the COVID tumble dryer, but you know. It's always interesting to look at the opportunities through challenge and I think, you know, a community that is values-based has come through it really strongly because of those values. Um, and a community that acknowledges skills and life skills and being lifelong learners of those skills uh, is important and that has helped us come through. You know, we're back to 370, looking to grow to 400 students next year. And so we're back on sort of a regeneration plan and, you know, Bali's starting to open up, but we are pretty, you know, it's a destination school and no one really wants to send their kids to a, an awesome school like Green School Bali, but then for them to be doing it online. So we had our challenges.
0: I can imagine. Absolutely fascinating to hear about your your mission and the policies behind how you run the Green School Bali. Thank you so much for your time. It's it's been a real insight. Thank you.
7: Yeah, my pleasure. And check out the website. Um, we're a real school. Um, we're doing some really cool things. And I'm always happy to, to connect with other educators if there's people out there listening. So. Um, yeah get in touch
0: you can imagine how cool it would be to get to go and do a like a I, I, did, I remember I did an exchange program to a school in Frankfurt and I did a term at yeah, yeah. a German school in Frankfurt uh, I learnt a lot of German and and, and yeah. ate a lot of shoko muesli which was pretty delicious but, but imagine how cool <laughs> it would be to do a term in Bali that would be awesome um uh, we, we may we may well have to speak later i could send the kids um yeah. <laughs> they're a bit too young at the moment but uh so that is sal gordon uh, head of learning at green school international in bali making us all want to send our children uh to school in the jungle thank you so much for your time thank you this is eye on education on the agenda
1: with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people
0: hello there and welcome back andrew hosey joins me in the studio that was a fascinating interview i have to say so interesting it really intriguing the level of um i I mean i i have to say doing this special program you really do learn about the the different thinking that goes behind uh pedagogy 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 i know i've had a coffee can you tell (laughs) i'm trying out new words that i don't know how to pronounce pedagogy pedagogy
2: i thought it was pedagogue
0: oh but what about whether you add a why Pedagogy.
2: Oh, okay. It can't be uh, pedagogy. No, okay. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I don't know either. If you know. Try and write it phonetically. I'm sure you won't be able to. Uh, Well, no, maybe you will. Um, Thank you very much, Elsa, who's got in touch. Really appreciate your message. 4001 or 04871 5500 is the way to get in touch with us. Uh, uh, Elsa has got in touch. She says that she's a teacher. She's dyslexic, but she's been uh, teaching biology for 15 years. So just to give you a sense there, um, that certainly if your child is dyslexic, uh, that is not a problem. I mean, that I, I, ho- I hope that that is the ma- one of the main messages that we've got across uh, as a result of this program. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the KHDA has introduced a school fees fact sheet to give parents a breakdown of all the charges they face. I'm smiling because every time I say that sentence, I worry I'm going to say something mm-hmm. I shouldn't. Uh, Andrew Hosey uh, has been looking into this story.
2: Yes, I have. The sheet will be a one-page reference that includes all fees a school may charge during an academic year. This will include the annual tuition fee, other costs related to transportation, extracurricular activities, school trips and books. Parents of pupils in all private schools in Dubai will be able to access the fact. Sheet's Shama al-Mansouri from Dubai's Knowledge and Human Development Authority spoke to us earlier about the strategy.
1: The fact sheet provides parents with a comprehensive and reliable information about the school fees. It's a one-page reference that includes all fees that school may charge during an academic year. Parents can clearly see what's mandatory and what's optional for them. Everything from tuition to transportation, extracurricular activity and school trips are included. This is a step toward building a greater transparency in the school community and it helps parents, students and school to engage with each other in an informed manner. Dubai is home to 215 schools offering a wide range of choices. You can really choose something that's right for your child's growth and development.
0: Okay, so how many schools are included in this initiative at the moment, Andy? Well,
2: in the first phase, sheets will be made available by schools that start their academic year in April, so this month, uh, which is mainly the Indian curriculum schools. This means it will benefit the parents of more than 81,000 pupils across 35 schools in Dubai in the first phase.
0: Okay, how about other schools because that includes me. <laughs>
2: so that's looking at the start of the next academic year that's September of course. We're looking British American IB curriculums but the service will be available before the close of this current academic year which is I believe at the end of June or perhaps the beginning of July.
0: For me it is the 7th of July. Oh. So there you go. Yeah, it's marked in my diary that's the day the kids break up and the misery of the school holiday starts. Uh, right, it's been an absolute pleasure. Eye on Education has been wonderful as always. Andrew, thank you very much for all your help over the last two weeks.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I will be sending you back to the newsroom for because well, Zina will return. But oh, it's, a, it's a gentle balance. It's a gentle balance. I still get to see Andrew a lot when I'm in the newsroom, which is fantastic. This is Eye on Education on the agenda.
1: With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai.
0: And that's all from the Ion Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11 a.m. to catch up on the latest education headlines.